We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today, my guest is Jason Bussell, and he is an acupuncturist who practices Chinese medicine in a suburb of North Chicago along with his wife. He's written a book on dietary sorts of issues from a Chinese medicine perspective. He's been the past president of the Illinois Acupuncture Association, and he is one of the first Westerners to get a PhD from Guangzhou University. And we're going to talk today all about eating Chinese style. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Max. It's a pleasure. Good to have you here. Michael Max. I'm sorry. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> it's a pleasure. You know what's really funny is uh, people have messed my name up my whole life in English. You know, whenever I'd, whenever I'd go to school, they, they'd always get it turned around. And the weird thing is when I went to Asia the same thing happened. I've, I just, I have a Chinese name that lends itself to uh, being said backwards as well. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. So you wrote a book. Tell us a bit about your book. Well, it's called The Asian Diet, Simple Secrets for Eating Right, Losing Weight, and Being Well. It was published by Finhorn Press in 2009, and now it's been sold all around the world. I wrote the book because I wanted to give all this information to my patients. With all my patients, I go over what I call the diet, lifestyle, and attitudes talk, mm -hmm. which are the three greatest factors that can get us out of or back into balance that we can control. And so I'd go over the Chinese recommendations for adjusting all of these parameters. And at the end of the talk, oftentimes my patients would ask, this is great, where can I get this in a written form? And I looked for years for something to refer them to, and I couldn't find one. So I wound up writing mine. Yeah, sometimes that you know that's all you can do, right? Yes, I didn't want to write a book. It was a lot of work, but now I'm I'm grateful to have the information out and accessible to more than just my patient base. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll have all the information for that on the show notes, so people can go get copies of it and and that kind of thing. 
You mentioned so- you just mentioned something here, and, and I think that a lot of us acupuncturists uh, do something like this. I can't remember exactly how you just said it. Something about attitude, diet, and something else. It's the diet, lifestyle, and attitudes talk. Diet, lifestyle, and attitudes talk. I think a lot of us have that talk. Yes, and I think that's one of the fortes of Chinese medicine is that we look for the cause. Western medicine is addressing the symptom as the disease. You get rid of the symptom, you get rid of the disease. But in Chinese medicine, we see that symptoms are the body's way of asking us to change something. And it's usually something in those three areas, diet, lifestyle, or attitudes. And so if we just suppress the symptom and don't get the message, the body will give us a louder message. An example that I use for this is if you're eating improperly, it'll give you indigestion. Mm-hmm. And so you don't respond the way your body wants, but you start taking Zyrtec or Prevacid or some sort of uh, proton pump inhibitor. And so you get rid of that symptom, but you haven't changed the diet. So then it gives you obesity. So you don't change the diet and you say, I'm going to hit the gym more. I'm going to take some Relicor, some other medicine to try and keep my weight down. But you still haven't made the change. So then it gives you heart disease. It gives you a heart attack. And, uh, and so you have the triple bypass and you start taking the Coumadin, but you don't change the diet. So then it gives you diabetes. It says, I really want you to change how you eat. But you don't change and you just start taking the, the insulin and, and the glucophage. And so the body says, I really want you to change how you eat. I'm giving you a stroke. If we just pay attention to the early messages, we won't have this escalation of symptoms. There's lots of different ways of deciding how to intervene in a situation or help people with their health. What is it that drew you so profoundly toward diet? I think diet is the most profound impact. Uh, is the choice we make that has the most profound impact every day, whether or, whether or not we are aware of it. It's a choice we make every day that's either going to put us closer to balance or further away. And we've got this great ignorance, this great disconnect from what we put in our bodies and how they function. And I thought that was a vital need, a vital importance to raise the awareness. Right. You know, it's interesting. This makes me think of a person that I saw in my clinic some time ago who came in and said, I haven't been feeling so well. And I think I'm noticing that when I eat certain things, I feel worse. Is this actually possible? (laughs) Now, you laugh, and and, and I kind of laugh, and and I suspect maybe even many listeners to the show will go, well, of course there's a connection. But, you know, I think this patient really spoke something that's very deep in our particular culture, which is that there's not really a connection. If If there's some way that you feel bad, like you said, take the Prilosec. Right? GERD goes away, problem solved. Yeah, and there's been a great campaign to get us away from thinking about where our food comes from. Because natural food is pretty cheap, but when it gets processed, they can make a whole lot more money out of it. So we've been sold this idea that food is nothing more than generic fuel, and all that matters is how many carbs, how much fat, how much niacin, protein, etc. But we didn't evolve by eating protein, carbs, and niacin. We evolved by eating food, real food, and that's how the body knows how to handle it. What are the differences that you see between Western dietary therapy and Chinese dietary therapy? There are some glaring differences. And when I lecture about this, um, I'm often greeted with some skepticism. But I, I like to say that there are many disparate opinions on what constitutes healthy eating, but nobody studied this longer nor more successfully than the Chinese. So I put a lot more stock in what they come up with over millennia as opposed to our recommendation of the month. Right now, we're using our latest, greatest science to tell us how to eat. And our latest, greatest science keeps changing its mind every 5, 10 years. Pretty much, yeah. 
Yeah. So what the Chinese have found, most of us should eat most of the time are simple grains, slightly cooked vegetables, and a little bit of everything else. Of the grains, white rice is the best. Now, this is kind of interesting. That goes quite counter to our Western thinking that you want to have the uh, less processed stuff. Yes, and in general, we advocate for whole foods. White rice is the notable exception. People think that brown rice is better because it has more B12 and niacin. And in America, our, our way of thinking right now is just reductionistic that things are merely the sum of their parts. So if it has more of these components, it must be better. Mm. Well, they're not accessible to us. They have a very poor bioavailability. Brown rice is white rice with a thick husk around it. It's like eating a walnut not taking the shell off. Of course, nature had to put some nutrients in in order to make that shell, but they aren't for us. They have a very poor bioavailability. There's another compound in the brown rice husk that's called phytic acid, mm -hmm. which is known as an anti-nutrient because it blocks the absorption of the nutrients that are in the rice and in whatever else you're eating. Now, in China, they are omnivorous. They pride themselves on eating a huge variety of things, and they scoff at how many things we fail to recognize as viable foods. Right. Especially the people in Guangzhou. Yes, but they don't eat the husk of the brown rice because they found that was too difficult to digest. Okay, so this might be kind of a hardball question. There's a big pushback on grains in general in the United States these days. The paleo movement, um, you know, like you say, we seem to change our mind about diet every five or ten years. But there's a big suspicion about grains these days. I was wondering if you could address that for us. Well, I think that's just another flavor of the month. Dr. Atkins said that white rice will make you fat. I thought that was hilarious when you can point to 1.3 billion people in Asia that are having white rice, two, three meals a day and aren't fat. And now that has been expanded to all grains. The China's been cultivating grains for thousands of years. We have evolved the ability to handle them. And it's not just the Chinese, the Europeans and their descendants as well. Now, when we're genetically modifying and we're spraying things with all sorts of pesticides, that is a great concern. But the problem is not inherently with the grains. You now, with wheat, there is a problem that uh, a lot of us have been overdosed on it, that they just put it in as a filler for a lot of our processed foods, so we've reached a threshold of tolerance with it. Um, but white rice, we don't see that nearly as much because it's the most hypoallergenic of the grains. And let me, let me please explain that when I say that white rice is the best, it doesn't mean it should be taken to the exclusion of all the other grains. A good diet is like a good stock portfolio, diversified. Right. If you have the same thing every day or even every week, you're loading up in one sector. That makes you more prone to the dangers of that sector, while at the same time you're missing out on all the other good things happening in the market. Mm -hmm. It's like a good portfolio. We recommend you hedge your bets. You should have them all. Rye, wheat, oats, quinoa, flax, spelt, millet, sorghum, temp, amaranth corn, even brown rice, but the one you can have more than any is white rice. But it still shouldn't be the bulk of our diet. The thing that we should have the most of are slightly cooked vegetables and a wide variety of those. And this is another area that differs from Western dietary therapy right now. There's the, the raw food movement. Right. And people think that when you cook a vegetable, you destroy all its nutrition. That's not true. Lightly steaming or sautéing does destroy about 10%. But that remaining 90% is then unlocked and available. So it's more bioavailable. Yes. Everything you put in your stomach that's cold and raw, you have to heat and cook. That steals your energy and slows your metabolism. 
In America, we think that a big salad is the healthiest thing you could eat, especially for weight loss. But we all know people who are big and eating a big salad every day and aren't losing weight. Right. It's too difficult to digest. It dampens the digestive fire. So we lighten the load, do more of the cooking outside of the body, and then we can just serve as the filters. Send good stuff to the tissue, bad stuff to the tissue paper. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Let's get back to this phylic acid thing for a moment. My wife, who is Chinese, cooks, of course, you know, from a Chinese point of view. And one of the things that I've noticed that she's done over the years is anytime she's going to do some kind of a grain thing, beans, grains, anything, um, she'll soak it first, usually overnight. Yes. And, and that's what we do. And it's something I describe in the book. As I had said, this, this, um, this variety of grains is better than just one. But the other grains have got a longer cooking time unless you soak them first. So what we do is once a month we'll either go to the Asian market and buy a bag of organic mixed grains or sometimes we just go to Whole Foods and grab a handful of the different grains. We'll put that into a bowl of filtered water and soak it overnight. And then in the morning we'll pour off the water and, and put it into one cup portions into baggies and freeze it. That way we want to make rice, we'll take two cups of white rice and one cup of this mix. Mm -hmm. This way we are having a wider variety but we're cutting the concentration of those more difficult to digest grains. When you soak the brown rice and these other ones, you can get most of that phytic acid out. So if you're doing it at your home yourself, you can do it. But when we're ordering this at restaurants, most of the time they are not soaking it ahead of time. Probably not. Yeah. Plus, if you can sprout the grains, as Paul Pitchford says, when you sprout a grain, it becomes less of a grain and more of a vegetable. And since vegetables are the best thing for us, if we can have our grains be a little more vegetable-like, that's going to be better for us as well. So I really like your, your wife's idea and practice of soaking the grains before she cooks them. Yeah, I thought it was just an oddball thing that she did for a long time. And then as I began to study and look a little more into this, and especially the role of the phytic acid and how that acts as an anti-nutrient, I realized the incredible brilliance that she just picked up because she grew up in China. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, the cultural wisdom. The cultural wisdom. Yeah, it beats a lot of lab science. Well, what's interesting to me is that lab science eventually seems to kind of come around to the cultural wisdoms. Yes, but we, we also know that lab science is often uh, manipulated by moneyed interests. Well, yeah, well, we would call that evil food chemistry, right? Yeah, like all the reports showing that dairy is so good for us and that high fructose corn syrup is just, as, as, just as the same as sugar. Talk to us a little bit about dairy. The Chinese are very down on dairy. Uh, there's a couple of problems with dairy. For one, it robs the bones of calcium. The commercials don't tell you that, but the commercials are paid for by people that are trying to sell us dairy. So they tell you that it has calcium, and that's true. They don't tell you about the casein, which is a highly acidic protein, which requires our calcium carbonate to neutralize. So it gives you one calcium, but takes two back in the processing of this casein. The parts of the world with the highest rates of milk and milk product consumption have the highest rates of osteoporosis and hip fracture. The other problem with dairy is that it's designed by nature to grow tissue. It's designed for infants. They need a lot of tissue in a hurry, and they have the proper digestive enzymes to transform that rich and viscous material into usable tissue. By the time we have a full set of teeth, we don't need it anymore. That's why breastfeeding tends to end around one to three years. I'm now convinced that teeth are nature's way of telling mom when it's time to wean because all of a sudden it gets really uncomfortable. But in an adult body, and even in a toddler body, the tissue it turns to is phlegm. And phlegm can manifest many different ways. One of his favorite places to get up into the, the nasal sinuses with nasal congestion, sinusitis and rhinitis. It can also hang out in the throat with a post-nasal drip. It can drip down into the lungs, including clear breathing. 
It gets into the brain, including clear thinking. It can lodge between the skin and the muscles as fat. It can also congeal to form cysts, fibroids, and tumors. The Chinese understand cancer and these other abnormal growths as being basically phlegm balls and saw more of them in the populations that had dairy. Recent research coming out of Cornell has shown that casein, that milk protein, is carcinogenic, and a study out of Harvard showed that commercial milk and milk products were carcinogenic. Now, because of the billions of dollars in the dairy industry, these stories were effectively suppressed. But, you know, Cornell and Harvard are no slouch institutions. Do you have access to those studies? I do. Well, one was put into a book. It's called The China Study. Mm-hmm. And the other one you can get on PubMed if you do a search just for Harvard, uh, Harvard commercial milk cancer. And I, I could look that up and I could get that to you. Yeah, maybe we could put that on the show notes page. That would be of interest, I think, to the people listening to the program here. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. That'd be great. Yeah, I know that that from the Chinese point of view, dairy is is very suspect. I didn't realize that the casein was actually robbing calcium from the system. Yes, that's that's the uh, dominant opinion right now. Now, there, there's been a great push in the past 60 years or so to get people drinking more milk. And it's been very successful. We've got more people drinking more milk to later in life, all in the name of preventing osteoporosis. Over that time, osteoporosis rates have not come down at all. In fact, they've skyrocketed. It's not, it's not just the dairy, because we also have a more sedentary lifestyle, and it's also the fizzy drinks that we're drinking. But if the dairy is supposed to be protecting us, it's not doing that job. It's not doing that job. What's the issue with fizzy drinks? Uh, the carbonic acid. Same sort of thing. Robs the bonds, leaches calcium from the bones. So that is this the diet sodas and the regular sodas? Yep, and even the the Lacroix. So any kind of fizzy carbonated. Yeah, any carbonated drink should be kept in moderation. Our number one beverage should be water. That's what we drank since the beginning of time. Number two should be green tea. Prevents heart disease, vascular disease, cancer, cavities, increases metabolism, decreases appetite, regulates blood sugar and blood pressure, lowers lipids, triglycerides, and cholesterol, strengthens bones, reduces pain, improves mood, increases endurance, and prevents chromosomal damage in the eggs and sperm. Well, that's crazy. That sounds like a superfood. Yes. How come we haven't put it into a pill and tried to sell it? Oh, people do. The green tea extract. Um, But again, this is the idea that if a little is good, then more and more must be better. Yeah. Or, or, as I, or as a friend of mine likes to say, more must be gooder. More must be gooder, yes. Um, and yeah, the more I learn about green tea, the more I'm becoming convinced that it came straight from God or from aliens. Because it's so good for so much and so often in an anomalous way. Caffeine from all sources impairs bone health. Except green tea, it strengthens them. Caffeine from all sources impairs fertility. Green tea promotes it. Caffeine from all sources stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, our fight-or-flight response. Green tea is the only thing in nature that has the antidote to that. L-theanine, which stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system, our calm-down-and-relaxed state. So it takes you to the left and takes you to the right, leaving you balanced, mm-hmm. whereas other, all other sources of caffeine just take you out of balance. Right. What about, like, the? Um, they're not quite green teas. They're more like a blue-green tea, like, like the Taiwanese oolongs, or the ones that are slightly roasted or a little bit fermented. Those are good, too. The closer you get to black tea, though, the less you get from green tea. Green tea is to black tea as green bananas are to black bananas. Black bananas have more flavor, but they're more dead. They have less life. Mm-hmm. And um, 
black tea compared to green tea has got twice the caffeine and about one-tenth of the health benefits. So oolong compared to green, you might have 20% more caffeine and 20, 30% fewer health benefits. Still very good for you. Still much better than a coffee or any sugary drink. Or a fizzy drink, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's get back to this calcium thing for a moment. Because sure. it, it is a big concern for many people. Osteoporosis is, you know, anyone, you know, women especially over a certain age, they're all concerned about it. The usual way that that's, I'm going to put this in quotes, taken care of here in the West is uh, Fosamax, which brings its own problems. Mm-hmm. So if you want to protect your bones and you really want to get the calcium that's going to be bioavailable to keep your bones healthy, where do you get it? A wide variety of vegetables. Green leafy, yeah, green leafies are the best source, um, but also other good sources. Vitamin D is is important with bone health. Unfortunately, we don't get much vitamin D. One of the best sources is available in our food source, and we often don't avail ourselves of it. That is the skin of fish. So when you're making your salmon, you usually scrape the skin off. If you leave that on, that's going to greatly enhance your. It's a very bioavailable form of vitamin D. If you can't get that, then I'm generally down on supplementation, but I do recommend vitamin D if you're not getting the fish skin. Mm -hmm. You know, I can remember going out for breakfast in Taiwan and getting like a fish soup that had this like really thick skin on it. Yeah. And they don't have the problems with the osteoporosis that we have. Also eating the little fish where you eat the bones, the anchovies and sardines. Mm -hmm. These are also very good sources of calcium. What about like the little shrimp? Those are really popular over in Asia as well. Yes. Yeah, where they eat the shell. Yeah, they just eat the whole thing. Yeah, in America, we peel the shell off. We're missing something with that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the fats that you get from dairy. So, for example, ghee. What's your take on that? The fats seem to be less harmful than, than the whole milk products, like the cheese, the yogurt. And Actually, yogurt is, is probably the most benign form because it has the cultures that break it down and break down other foods. So the issue is casein. As long as you're either adding something like they do with the yogurt in terms of bacteria to help digest it, or you're taking it out in the case of ghee, the trick is to deal with casein. Is that correct? I'm not sure that that's correct. That may be it. But again, this is kind of our Western thinking of the things being the sum of their parts. In Asia, they they have the technology to separate butter, but they still stayed away from it. So I, I think that everything that's coming from the nipple is designed, is intended to have this growing property, you know, being intended for infants. So I think that it's probably less harmful than the whole milk products, but I would still keep that. I, I wouldn't keep that as an everyday product. Got it. Okay. So I've noticed you keep referencing Asia. And as we mentioned, you have a PhD from Guangzhou University. Is that correct? Yeah, Guangzhou University of Chinese Medicine. How did you get there? Well, when in 2001, when I was finishing my master's degree, I did an internship over there and made some connections. And the dean of my school at the time, Dr. Chai Huiyan, had been a dean of a department over there and then came over and taught at the Midwest College of Oriental Medicine and was our dean. And in 2008, Guangzhou University finally had enough English-speaking professors that they decided to open up the program to Americans. And they called all their contacts in America, including my, my mentor, Dr. Chai, and asked them to select students to go and sit for the entrance exam. And I was honored to be one that she selected and flew over and took this six-hour essay test in the 106 degree heat with no air conditioning. Oh yeah. It gets hot there. Yeah. They they had air conditioning but it was broken. 
And uh, I'm just dripping sweat on my paper and having to write around my, my sweat marks as I'm, I'm answering these essay questions. It was difficult. But fortunately, I passed the exam. And then in 2009, I started matriculating. There were eight of us from the Midwest that made the cut. And so there were eight classes that we had to take and then the dissertation. So rather than all eight of us flying over there to take our classes, one at a time we'd fly a professor here and put them up in a hotel and rent some classroom space. So I was still able to keep my practice, still able to, I didn't have to relocate my family, which it would have been nice to live in Guangzhou, but they have a terrible pollution problem. Oh, and it, well, nice to live in Guangzhou. You were just talking about how hot and sweaty it was. Okay. Well, there there would have been some benefits. Yes. The hot and sweaty is <laughs> terrible. And I wouldn't have minded so much for myself, but I have two young daughters and I think I would have been sentencing them to a lifetime of asthma if they had to spend years there during my matriculation. So I was grateful that I was able to minimize my travel there. Mm-hmm. But in 2012, I completed my, my dissertation and went over and defended it and became one of the first Americans to earn that PhD in acupuncture. A couple things about that. First is, how would you say that the Chinese way of learning Chinese medicine is different than the American way of learning Chinese medicine? The Chinese way seems to be much more regimented, that you are presented that there is one right way for everything. And once you've mastered that, then they will let you know only at the end of the journey will they tell you that, yeah, there are variations of this that you can now explore. Whereas in the American education, I, I think things were presented to us more, uh, more flexibly. That you know, the same pattern could present, and the same patient could present, and three different doctors could identify three different patterns in those patients and treat them completely differently and still have success. Mm-hmm. But for the introductory Chinese students, there is only one right way. And then after they've really gotten that piece down and you've got a foothold in the medicine, then, then they open it up and, and go, well, actually, there's these other options. Yes, but that won't be until your third or fourth, fifth year. So you've been rooted in the, in the, in the fundamentals. And they also have a much better knowledge of herbs because they have a wonderful song that they learn starting on day one that teaches all about the herbs. And, and unfortunately, if you don't speak Chinese, you don't have access to that. And um, this is another side project that I undertook. There's a gentleman, an acupuncturist named Joe Curcio, who wrote uh, a two-disc series called Songs on Sans and Tunes on Tongs, which mm. are for the students of acupuncture and oriental medicine, that um, songs in English about the herbal formulas. And it was great, but he didn't write enough of them. So as I was studying for the herb boards, I wrote another two-disc set which I call the Supplemental Herb Songs, and publish those to help us learn it. So we're at a bit of a disadvantage that we don't have these ready-made tools, so these refined tools for helping us memorize this vast storehouse of information. Yeah, the songs are really helpful. I've, I've got a couple of books of those that are in Chinese. And, and yes, in Chinese, they make perfect sense, and they're easy to remember. They're these lovely mnemonics. Yes, and, and I, that was one thing. I, I wish that I had studied Chinese and, and still would like to at some point and applaud you for, for your mastery of the language. And that really would have been a great advantage in, in learning the material. But still, to, to take and make your own songs means that you're going to get the material. Yes, I got it, um, but not in, not in as linear a fashion as the Chinese song, which starts with the first herb and ends with the last and is all very methodical and very logically laid out. Yeah, well, they've been doing it for thousands of years. 
Yeah, they've had more time. They've had more time. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. What was your dissertation on? My dissertation was developing or investigating the effect of acupuncture on working memory and anxiety. I was limited in what I could do is that I didn't have a university support here, so I had to do it all on my own. And my background's in psych. I have a bachelor's in that and worked in psych hospitals for many years, so very interested in cognitive and emotional processes. Now, research has shown that anxiety can impair memory, and it, ac- research has shown that acupuncture can reduce anxiety. So my hypothesis was that acupuncture should be able to improve memory by reducing anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked with a specific type of memory called working memory, which has been associated with predicting ability in arithmetic, reading, learning new languages, learning to spell, playing bridge, and a whole host of other mental activities. So it's a good barometer of people's mental acuity. It basically measures how well you can keep things in the front of your mind while doing things in the back of your mind. So I had everybody come in. I had 90 undergraduate subjects, and they all filled out the state trait anxiety inventory, which is a, a two-page questionnaire. How anxious are you right now? How anxious do you have to be, happen to be in general? So this is a psychological tool commonly used to measure anxiety. Yes. Yeah, it's the gold standard in anxiety instruments. So I get a baseline. How anxious are they right now? How anxious do they tend to be? And then they all laid on the table. Half of them had needles inserted, half of them just had the points cleaned and touched, but no needles inserted. They all lied there for 20 minutes. After that, they all filled out the state portion again. Are you any more relaxed now than you were before? If you had acupuncture, you were significantly more relaxed than those that didn't. Then they all took the automated operation span test, which is a computerized test of working memory. It will give you a two-part math problem, like two plus two times three. Mm-hmm. And then you click the mouse, and it will show you an answer, say uh, seven. And if that's the correct answer, you click true. If that's the wrong answer, you press false. And then it will show you a letter for one second, like F. And then it shows you another math problem, another true or false, another letter. Another math problem, true or false, another letter. It does this between three and seven times, and then it will ask you what were the letters you were shown in what order. So that's keeping how well you can keep the information in the back of your head while you're doing the math problems in your front. And what we found is that if you have one 20-minute acupuncture session, that you will score 9.5% higher on the memory portion, and you'll, and you'll commit 36% fewer math errors. So it's almost a full letter grade improvement in, in memory and a 30% improvement in performance. How long do these effects last for? That's a great question and one that we didn't investigate. But now that this my, public, my study's been published, I've been seeing a lot of students that will come in for the SAT, and they'll come in the day before, and they're still doing this about 10% better than their practice tests had indicated. The interesting thing about this, though, is that we saw that acupuncture does reduce anxiety and that it does improve memory, but not in a correlated fashion. So it was not the case that the people that had the lowest anxiety that did the best, and it was not the people that had the greatest reduction in anxiety that did the best. 
those two effects were unrelated. So acupuncture reduces anxiety and improves memory, but the improvement in memory is through some other mechanism than just reducing anxiety. Mm -hmm. But the anxiety has something to do with it. Those that have more anxiety as a trait did uh, had a greater improvement. But even those that have no trait anxiety, they're just perfect, perfectly calm people, still saw their improvement, saw their performance improve. That's really interesting. So everybody can benefit from getting acupuncture. So everybody listening out there, if you have to take final exams, the SAT, GRE, you know, some some board exams, seek out acupuncture before it'll it'll improve your score. Probably not a bad idea to do this before a big interview of some sort either, or if you have a presentation to give. Yes, anytime that you could be anxious. And with my background in psych, this is also laid, played out that some people will use acupuncture in conjunction with psychotherapy. For example, that they will have topics that are very difficult for them to discuss with their therapist, like uh, past abuse. And if they come in and have acupuncture first, then they feel more safe and calm in discussing these difficult topics. So acupuncture can be used in conjunction with psychotherapy well in this way. Yeah, it, it really seems to take that hypervigilance down a notch or two, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. It calms the spirit. It Absolutely, it does. In terms of memory... Now, this, is, this might be a little bit off topic, and I don't know if you have an answer for it, but, you know, especially as, as those of us are getting older and older and dementia is often in the news and a huge concern for lots of people. What's your take on acupuncture in helping with just keeping the memories that we have? Acupuncture can help mental acuity. It can help to resolve phlegm, and as I had said, that, acu that phlegm can manifest in the brain, occluding clear thinking, and as we understand Alzheimer's is plaque buildup. Plaque is another form of, of phlegm. Mm -hmm. So we can help with that. It can also help calming the spirit because oftentimes anxiety can in interfere with our ability to process clearly. But other things that I think are important are with the diet. It's having the wide variety of vegetables and to try and get chlorella, which is the blue-green algae which is, uh, in, as I said before, I don't generally advocate for supplementation, but chlorella is the one food we didn't take with us when we evolved out of the oceans. And that is a very good chelating agent, which helps to pull some of the, the heavy metals out of our body. So mercury, lead, and aluminum have all been associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. So chlorella, particularly when it's paired with cilantro, are very good at pulling these out. I also recommend that people stop using antiperspirants because those have aluminum and that can leach into the system through the skin. So deodorants are fine, but the antiperspirants will have this aluminum and those should be avoided as well. Right. We had a show with uh, Christina Kizik recently and she, she makes all her own natural mm -hmm. uh, products of this nature. And she had a real similar thing to say that really your body wants to perspire. It's important for your body to perspire. Now, the odor is another issue, and we can deal with that with other things. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, of these new birth control pills where women skip cycles. I think the body wants you to flush that stuff out monthly. I, I don't like the idea of skipping you know, three or six months of, of cleanse. Well, and I have concerns because I think a bit like you as a Chinese medicine practitioner. For our listeners out there, they might be thinking, hey, this, this is great. I don't have to deal with a period for a couple of months. What, what's the problem with not having a monthly period? The problem is that it is is that that tissue turns old, that blood turns old, it becomes necrotic. It is something dead inside you and we don't have data on what this does, but just from an intuitive point of view, you don't want to keep dead rotting tissue in your body. 
And this is another idea, another example of us thinking that science can do better than nature. And it reminds me of when the doctors were promoting that formula is superior to breast milk. You know, nature knows what we should do. We shouldn't mess with that. We should mess with that as little as possible. And for convenience sake, to, to avoid the periods, I think that's messing with Mother Nature. Plus, you often see that a, women, a lot of women will have this breakthrough bleeding that is not predictable. And so they're still having this inconvenience. They just don't know when it's coming. I've been reading a book recently on birth control pills. And one of the issues that they're talking about with some of the, especially the later generation pills, is that there's actually a lot of problems with blood clots. Yes, the Yaz, Yasmin, and Oscilla. Yes. And, and I'm not a fan of interfering with nature, but the orthotricycline and the older generation ones, they, they work pretty fine for most people. A problem that most people don't know is that it can take up to 12 months or even longer to resume a normal cycle. My wife specializes in fertility, so we see all these women that are having trouble getting pregnant, and they weren't told when they came off the pill that it could take up to a year to be receptive to pregnancy. But the patents on the orthotricycline had expired, and so even though the Yaz, Yasmin, and Oscilla don't work any better, they can be they can be sold at a higher profit. So that's why there was this push to get everybody off of the old standard, which was working fine, and onto the new standard, which has heightened risks. And I think that's terrible. Well, it keeps money coming in the coffers. Yes. And I don't begrudge the pharmaceutical industry, their agenda, their company. They want to sell as much product as they can, but they shouldn't be running medicine. Right now, they are too powerful in the medical establishment, and I think that's very dangerous. But that's a, I mean, we could talk for hours about that. Yeah, and it's not really the subject of this particular show. Maybe a different one. Actually, I've got a question. Okay, so you, you eat kind of a chinese diet. Yes. Um, but so, in, in, as I talk about in the book, uh -huh. the, the principles are simple grains, slightly cooked vegetables, and a little bit of everything else. Minimize dairy, minimize processed, uh, wide variety of vegetables, etc. And these principles can be adhered to in different cultures. It's the Asian diet. It's not the Chinese diet because Chinese eat very different from Vietnamese and it's very different from Japanese and Korean, but they all adhere to these principles. Right. Well, actually, for that matter, northern and southern Chinese eat very different from each other. Yes, but they adhere to the principles. And we, could, uh, we can adopt these principles here in the Western cuisine as well. So it doesn't mean that you have to have Chinese food all the time, but you can follow these principles with the foods that are available here. Mm -hmm. So what would be a Western breakfast that would fit these principles? I don't think it's pancakes. It's not pancakes. Pancakes and dessert and pancakes and waffles are basically dessert. Cereals are cold and served with dairy and they're highly processed. Oatmeal is a good simple grain. Cream of wheat is a good simple grain. A rice porridge is a good simple grain. But we need to get more vegetables in. In Asia, breakfast looks a lot like lunch and dinner. And so what's good for us at any time is good for us at every time. So just try and figure out how to get more vegetables in with your breakfast. That'll serve you well as well. Eggs are good sometimes. Toast is, is good sometimes. But a lot of folks get into a rut and they have the same thing every day. And getting back to my portfolio analogy, that is overloading in one sector to the exclusion of all the others. So we want to mix it up and it doesn't have to be confined to this narrow category of foods that we identify as being specifically breakfast. Everything is fair game for breakfast. Right. Except for alcohol. Except for alcohol. Well, and, and try to stay away from desserts for breakfast. Yes. Yeah. Those aren't food. Those aren't food. <laughs> yeah. Just simply stated, those aren't food. 
Yes, they're highly processed derivatives. But if you're eating natural food, you can have it all. You can have meat. You can have fish. You can have vegetables. You can have the soy sauce. You can have eggs, chicken. You can have everything that you would have any other time of the day for breakfast. Cool. And and all this is in your book? Yes. What did you have for breakfast today? Today I had white rice with uh, in a seaweed wrap with vegetable and shrimp sprinkles and a little bit of sesame oil. It is a favorite of my daughter's, and my girl is on a spring break today, so we had breakfast together, and that's, that's what we had. Really? How old are your daughters? Six and three. And they're eating this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We are fortunate that they are not very picky, but also we just raise them with the expectation that this is food. You should eat it. If you don't like it, it's, you're not just feeding your tongue. You're feeding your whole body. You can, you can save the things you really like for after you eat your anchovies or your seaweed. And, and they've grown to love everything we've thrown at them. That's great. You know, I think our bodies have this innate wisdom that they've acquired over, you know, generations of living on the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And so unless we've kind of short-circuited that innate wisdom, the body kind of knows what it likes, Yes, but the processed foods do exactly, as you say, short-circuit that. Our super-saturated sweets, remove, they, they blind us to a, the ability to taste the natural sweetness in, in food. It's like staring at the sun and then trying to appreciate candlelight. Ah, that's a great metaphor, yeah. Thank you. Carrots have a natural sweetness to it, but if you're used to eating all this high-fructose corn syrup and aspartame, you won't be able to perceive it. It's so true. I've really pulled myself off of sugar the past couple of years. And at this point, certain vegetables, not, not even fruits. I mean, fruits are easy to taste the sweetness in. Mm-hmm. But even certain vegetables, really sweet. Everything tastes better when you, when you cut down the sugar. Well, except for things that are loaded in sugar. If I try to eat a cupcake these days, I just, I can't really, I can't really get it down, actually. <laughs> and that is a great consequence of what we've done with our daughters because we never give them the concentrated sweets. My girl was at a birthday party last year and she had her first cupcake and she took a lick of the frosting and put it down and went and got some fruit. Wow. I was so proud of her. <laughs> well, again, it shows that innate wisdom of the organism. Yeah. What would you recommend to people who might be listening and going, oh my goodness, I've super saturated my system. I've got this sweet tooth that won't quit. But these guys are kind of making sense. How can they go about shifting things up for themselves so they lose that sweet tooth? There are two approaches to this. In general, I advocate gentle change. However you change your diet or lifestyle, it's best to do so gently and slowly. To do, to do otherwise sets you up to fail and shocks your system. Detox diets, liquid diets, fasting diets are neither balanced nor moderate. The best way to get into balance is to live a little bit more in balance today, not to grossly overcompensate for yesterday. So if you're having dessert seven nights a week, let's shoot for six. And then after a couple weeks, we'll shoot for five and four. Or if you're having you know, a, a full slice of pie, let's shoot for three quarters of a slice and then cut that down to half and slowly taper that back. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the most sustainable way. In general, I don't advocate detoxes. I think we just need to stop toxing. However, at my office, my wife treats a lot of women that are trying to get pregnant and they'll go through artificial reproductive cycles, have the body's pumped full of chemicals and it'll be unsuccessful and they'll want to start right again with another one. So for them, they have the time pressure and she will put them on a detox to quickly flush these out. And just to try it out, I tried one one time 
and it was a 10-day detox from the company Metagenics, which I have no, no financial interest in. But it really short-circuited. Um, I, I, like, uh, I, I do like a little bit of sweet. I do like a little bit of meat, and I do like a little bit of alcohol. And after doing this detox, I wanted none of those. Really? Yes, I was. Uh, it really kind of put a, a problem in my my notion that we never need to detox because it was very effective in short circuiting that those cravings for me. So if you can't do it the stepwise way, then maybe you do want to do a ten day aggressive detox. And for some people, that can just stop that craving in its tracks. It might depend on people's personality. Some people like to take things a, a bit at a time and other people, they kind of like getting aggressive with change. Yes. But if you are going to do the 10-day or the 28-day detox, recognize that, that is a starting point, not an end point. A lot of people have got this notion, I can I can eat like crap for 10 years and I can undo that in 10 days. No, you can just, you can just set your course right in 10 days, but then you have to keep eating the right way after that. Yeah, I, I really like what you say about that that it's the beginning, it's not the end. Yeah. Yeah. I often have people come in to my clinic and they'll ask me about some dietary advice. They'll say, well, should I do a detox? How can I do a detox? And my usual comment is, well, you're actually built to detox. It's called pooping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and your liver. And your liver. So if we set those processes or strengthen them or, or get them doing what they're supposed to do, we're built to detox. Yes. We just need to stop adding more toxins in and we will eventually clear up. And, and not too long of a, a time period. Mm -hmm. What about, you mentioned not wanting to take your family to Guangzhou because of the toxicity of the air there. What if, you're what if you happen to live in Guangzhou? What if you're living in a place where you can't do anything about the toxic load that you're surrounded by? Have you got any thoughts about boosting up your system to deal with that? Um, I would want to, I'd probably be wearing a mask every time I left the house and I'd probably have a couple industrial strength HEPA air filters going inside my house and at my workplace. Exercise, Tai Chi and Qigong are very good for cleansing the body and for strengthening the respiratory organs and having a good clean diet can help to pull everything out, but I'm not I'm not as well versed in the airborne toxins as I am with the foodborne toxins and how to eliminate those from the body, unfortunately. If I moved over there, I would definitely have to find out more about that. Right. Well, you know, it's so often the case, we learn from the challenges that we're presented with. Yes. Yeah. And you were mentioning that, what was it, chlorella and... Chlorella and cilantro. And cilantro. Yeah, cilantro is known as a detoxifier, but you can detox and retox at the same time because it will liberate it from some tissue. It'll liberate some of these heavy metals from some tissue, but then it can just deposit it into others. So you take it with the chlorella and it binds with the heavy metals and goes out through the urine. So those two in combination are great. And they don't have to be in the same meal, but in the same day. So when you're looking at basically a chelation yes type situation you want to make sure that you're not just liberating these toxins but you're actually escorting them out the door exactly and that's what the chlorella does spirulina can do it as well but spirulina tends to be quite slightly cooling so maybe in the warmer climates that would be a better fit but i'm in chicago and um my folks generally need a little bit more warming up and chlorella is neutral whereas spirulina is cooling Right. I've heard something, and I don't understand all this, so I'm going to ask you, that there's chlorella and then there's like cracked cell wall chlorella? 
Yes, the cracked cell wall, that's a process that makes it more available. It's just like when we they said that when you cook the food, you make the nutrients more available. When they crack the cells, then uh, it is more available as well. So that's just, just a more bioavailable. Got it. Anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners in terms of some simple things that they can do with their diet to, to be more healthy and get more nutrition? Yes, well, for one thing, I'd like to encourage you all that you can be in a better place than you are now. Just because you've been, you've acted one way all the rest of your life, all the past of your life doesn't mean that you have to be that way forever. We are all works in progress. We will all continue to progress. I like the analogy of the caterpillar. It spends a long time crawling around and says, you know, I've always been a caterpillar. But then one day, he's a butterfly. And so you are all capable of this change. A simple thing to start with is that next time you're at the market, I'd like you to take a look around the produce section and take note of how many things they stock that we never touch. And slowly, maybe one new food a month, pick it up, go online, find out how to prepare it. The internet makes it really easy because you, you can find recipes for everything. And there's a lot of things we don't know how to prepare. You know, Ask your favorite search engine, how do you, pre- how do you cook rutabagas? You know, what do you do with mustard greens? And slowly start expanding that portfolio. And that'd be a really good place to start. Also, for the folks that want to lose weight, it is recommended that you fill your stomach halfway with food, one quarter with liquid, including soups, and leave one quarter empty for processing. If you've ever overstuffed a washing machine, you know nothing gets done because you need room for things to move around. It's also recommended that after meals, you take a thousand steps. If you get in the habit of walking or moving after you eat, you'll get out of the habit of eating to the point where you can no longer move. Have one half to one cup of green tea with or immediately after meals. It promotes efficient digestion and is one of the reasons why the Chinese are thin. Digestion is a warm process. Warm fluids facilitate that process. Cold fluids inhibit it. In China, they have hot green tea with most of their meals. And look at their shape. In America, we have ice cold beverages with all of ours. And look at us. So this, these are simple things that you can do to get started on your path. And I'm sure that you will realize the benefits. It might not be as quick as if you were to take a detox or do an Atkins or something, but it's about sustainability. This is a program that you can live, and the pounds will just naturally melt off of you without having to try. Yeah, we, we had a show with uh, Xander Khan a month or two ago, and he talked about his process of losing, I think it was something like 90 pounds slowly over the course of three years. Yeah, and that's a much healthier way to do it. And that's something and he, he must have done in a way that he can live. Well, that that's exactly what he did. He started cutting back on certain things. And like you were just saying, watched the portions a bit, left a little bit of emptiness for the digestion to happen. Mm-hmm. And then he simply walked a lot. Yeah, walking is one of the best exercises. Tai Chi, Qigong, walking, swimming. Those can be done every day. Everything else should be in a wider rotation. And leaving, and leaving that empty space, you know, as Americans, it, it seems to me we have a real aversion to any sense of lack or any sort of emptiness. We, want to fill, we don't just want to fill it up. We want to supersize it. Yes, we do. And that's not working very well for us. Uh, no, it doesn't appear to be. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Have you got a website? Of course, you've got a website. So tell us where that website is. Yes, it is theasiandiet.com. There you can order the book. You can read most of the principles. Most of what's in the book I've got summarized on the website. 
Awesome. I'll make sure that's on the show notes page. And uh, listeners, you can go check all that stuff out. It sounds like really wonderful way to uh, change things up and become a, a lot more healthy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.